um, but we're in the book of Esther. Just to say, um, chapter four, which we looked at two weeks ago, is the turning point for Esther when she finally says, you know, uh, for such a time as this, God has placed me here, and she boldly goes to the king. She shows courage to be used by God, to be used by God for relief and deliverance for God's people. So that's that's the background of where we're up to. Uh, Esther chapter four is where we finished two weeks ago. Uh, And all the while in the background, God is at work. God is at work through quiet providence. God is at work sovereignly in the book of Esther, even though it's one of only two books in the whole Bible where God is not explicitly mentioned. God is at work all the way through the events of the book, as we will see particularly today. Okay, now let me uh, talk about something as a way of connecting to the passage we're going to look at today. The butterfly effect. The butterfly effect is the idea that a hurricane in Florida can be traced to a busy insect in West Africa. It goes something like this. A butterfly flaps their wings. It stirs the smallest air and wind gusts. That that a burst of air grows and grows that ripples around the globe and leads to a hurricane in Florida or thousands and thousands of miles away. Now, I'm on board with the butterfly part. The idea that small things have a big impact. The idea that the, the very small moments and very small seeds can lead to huge impact, big impact over time. You know, the day of small beginnings, the Bible says, do not despise. A seed that you plant and over the years becomes the biggest, tallest oak tree. It's not the, 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 it's not the result that is in question. It's not the result that you or I may have a problem with. It's the randomness of the whole concept. The randomness of, well, are humans victims of wind flaps thousands of miles away? Do entire cities wash into the sea because of an active insect around the other side of the world? There's no comfort in the haphazardness of a world like that. Let me read to you a few scriptures that bring great comfort. Listen to these promises from Scripture. Psalm 115 and verse 3. Our God is in heaven. He does whatever pleases him. Isaiah 43 and verse 15. Yes, and from ancient of days I am he. No one can deliver out of my hand. When I act, who can reverse it? Ephesians 1 and verse 11. In him we were chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. Lamentations 3 and verse 37. Who can command things to happen without the Lord's permission? And one that's not up on the screen. Daniel 4 and verse 35 in the message version says, No one can interrupt his work. No one can call his rule into question. 
You see, the butterfly might stir, but only with the permission of God can a wing flap create a hurricane. Listen to 1 Timothy 6 and verse 15. God, the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings and Lord of lords. God is the blessed controller of all things. And God certainly was in control in the passages of Scripture we are about to look at in the book of Esther. I want you to buckle your seatbelt and see the sovereignty of God, that God is at work. If you've got a Bible, it'll come up onto the screen. You might want to turn to Esther chapter 5, and we're going to read verses 1 to 2. This picks up where we were two weeks ago. Uh, Esther had prayed and fasted for three days in order to go into the presence of King Xerxes to ask for his favor, to ask to save the Jews. She prayed and fasted, and she goes in. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the palace, in front of the king's hall. The king was sitting on his royal throne in the hall, facing the entrance. When he saw Queen Esther standing in the court, he was pleased with her and held out the golden scepter that was in his hand. So Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. She has the king's blessing. Let's read on. Verse 3. Then the king asked, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? Even up to half of the kingdom, and it will be given to you. If it pleases the king, replied Esther, let the king, together with Haman, come today to a banquet that I have prepared for him. Bring Haman at once, the king said, so that we may do what Esther asks. So the king and Haman went to the banquet that Esther had prepared. As they were drinking wine, the king again asked Esther, now what is your petition? And it will be given to you. And what is your request? even up to half the kingdom, and it will be granted to you. Esther replied, my petition and my request is this. If the king regards me with favor, and if it pleases the king to grant my petition and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come tomorrow to the banquet that I will prepare for them. Then I will answer the king's question. So, just before we read the next verse. So all that's happened here is the king has said to the Queen Esther, what's your request? And she says, a dinner date. A dinner date with you, King Xerxes, and Haman. A nice evening for the three of us to have a dinner, to have some wine, and a nice chitcha. That's what she asks. They do it once, and then in verse 8, she says, let's do it again. Let's have another banquet. Let's have another special meal. Verse 9. Let's pick it up and carry on the story. Haman went out that day happy and in high spirits. I mean, Haman would have been like, yes, I'm in. I'm in. I'm really in here. The queen Esther asked me to come for a dinner with her and the king. I'm really in the inner circle of power in, in the palace. You know, he would have had a big head. Life was good. You know, I am the king's most trusted 
so even the queen is on my side. I'm the go-to for the king and queen. I, I'm the most important person who's not the king or queen in the whole of Persia. I mean, Haman's head must have just been massive because it would have been like huge head, high spirits, everything is good. But when Haman saw Mordecai at the king's gate and observed that he neither rose nor showed fear in his presence, he was filled with rage against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home, calling together his friends and Zeresh, his wife. So he sees Mordecai and his mood changes. He's angry. He's annoyed because remember, Mordecai from Esther chapter 3 has, has, has denied him and not bowed down to him and resisted him. So everything was great in the garden of Haman. And then he sees Mordecai and he's like, rage bubbling up inside of him. Verse 11. Read on to the next verse. Verse 11. Haman boasted to them, that's his wife and friends, about his vast wealth, his many sons, and all the ways the king had honored him, and how he had elevated him above the other nobles and officials. And that's not all, Haman added. I am the only person Queen Esther invited to accompany the king to the banquet that she gave. And she has invited me along with the king tomorrow. But all this gives me no satisfaction as long as I see that Jew Mordecai sitting at the king's gate. His wife, Zeresh, and all his friends said to him, have a pole set up, reaching the height of 50 cubits, which is basically about 75 feet. And ask the king in the morning to have Mordecai impaled or hung on it. Then go with the king to the banquet and enjoy yourself. This suggestion delighted the sadistic Haman, and he had the pole set up. So Haman was like, I want to deal with this Mordecai. I want to sort him out once and for all. So the idea is to suggest to him that he, he kind of makes these huge gallows, 70 feet high, that will impale and will kill Mordecai once and for all. I mean, not getting too graphic, but I was finding a little bit about this this week. But, but Persians used to impale or, or kill people on the gallows with a stake through the body. Okay, different to how you know crucifixion or how you might have seen things on movies. But the Persians, they, they were just, just really kind of graphic. Stake through the body. Okay, and, and Haman goes to bed dreaming about Mordecai being skewed on a stick high up in front of the whole city. He thinks, I've made it. He thinks life is sorted. I'm in there with the king and queen. I'm the most important person in the whole of the nation, with the exception of the king and the queen. And the one little rat that annoys me and upsets me, Mordecai, is going to be dealt with tomorrow once and for all, impaled on the gallows for all to see. Esther chapter 6, verse 1. To two. That night, the king could not sleep. So he ordered the book of the Chronicles, the record of his reign, to be brought in and read to him. It was found recorded there that Mordecai had exposed Bigthana and Teresa, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, who had conspired to assassinate King 
Xerxes. Stop for, oh, sorry, stop, stop for a moment. Xerxes could not sleep, okay? He couldn't sleep. Maybe he had a dodgy curry, uh, maybe kind of like, I don't know what it was, but he couldn't sleep. He tossed and turned, he tossed and turned. So he requested the reading of the book of records. You're like, oh, how can we send the king to sleep? He's going to read the book of records. I had the book of records read to him. Like a, like a midnight kind of lullaby read to a child so that they fall asleep. So you can imagine the servant comes and opens up the scrolls and they start reading. And on this particular day, six gates were installed in the city of Persia and the crops were brought in. There was a military victory in this province of your wonderful empire, King Xerxes. And then verse 2, Mordecai saved your life. King Xerxes, Mordecai saved your life. You can imagine it. King Xerxes then jumps out of bed and goes, whoa, 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 what is going on here? Now, if you've watched and you've been part of the series that we've been going through Esther over the past few weeks, you will remember that I sowed a seed in Esther chapter 2. If you've got a Bible, you might want to flick back to Esther chapter 2, verse 21 to 23, where it records how Mordecai heard about an assassination attempt, told Queen Esther, who told King Xerxes, and then the assassination attempt was foiled. The matter was recorded in the Chronicles, but nothing was done to, order, to honor Mordecai. When it happened, nothing was done, nothing at all to honor Mordecai. He didn't even get a plate or, or a watch or, or a cup. He got absolutely nothing. Fast forward to this moment in history, verse 3. What honor and recognition has Mordecai received for this, the king asked. Nothing has been done for him, his attendants asked. How, how is this possible, the king thought, that nothing has been done for Mordecai? Verse 4 and 5. This gets really good. This gets really good. The king said, who is in the court? Guess who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the palace to speak to the king about impaling Mordecai on the pole that he had set up for him. His attendants asked, answered, sorry, Haman is standing in the court. Bring him in. The king ordered, who happens to be in the court? Haman. Haman is in the court. Two men are in the court. Both of them have Mordecai on their mind. King Xerxes has Mordecai on his mind because he wants to honor him. Haman has Mordecai on his mind because he wants to kill him. And so he calls Haman in. He calls Haman in, and, and Haman's looking all self-important again. Yep, I'm going to come in and tell the king what to do, and yep, I'm the first point of call to the king. So Haman is called in. Verse 6. When Haman entered, the king asked him, what should be done for the man who for the man the king delights to honor? Now Haman thought to himself, ha, who is there that the king would rather honor than me? narcissistic, kind of self-centered 
Haman, it must be me. Yeah, the king's just being a bit coy about it. He's not mentioning my name, but he's asking, he's speaking about me. So Haman puffs out his chest and says this, starting at verse 7. So Haman answered the king, For the man the king delights to honor, have them bring a royal robe that the king has worn, and a horse the king has ridden, one with a royal crest placed on its head. Then let the robe and the horse be entrusted to one of the king's most noble princes. Let them robe the man the king delights to honor and lead him on the horse through the city streets, proclaiming before him, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. He lays it out. Haman lays it out, riding on the king's horse, robes, crown on his head, led through the streets. The people bow down. The people put the petals down on the floor. This man is to be honored. This man is to be praised. This man is to be celebrated. Great idea, thinks King Xerxes. Verse 10. <laughs> this is wonderful. This is like a great moment in scripture. Verse 10. You just want to dramatize this. You just want to get actors, actresses out and dramatize this because this is priceless. Go at once, the king commanded Haman. Haman's like, okay, I will. For me, for me. Get the robe and the horse and do just if you have suggested for... Mordecai the Jew, <laughs> who sits at the king's gate. Do not neglect anything that you have recommended. <laughs> In case Haman thinks, well, I'll go and get him, but I'm not doing what I just said. No, 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 no. The king says, everything that you said, Haman, which was brilliant, you need to do to Mordecai. So Haman got the robe and the horse. He rode Mordecai and led him on horseback through the city streets proclaiming before him, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. Would you just love to see Haman's face? Ah, would you just love? He thought it was going to be him, but it's his enemy. <laughs> Wouldn't you just love to have seen that? Have it dramatized. I mean, it just, it, could it get any better? Could it get any better? And you see, this is the first of a number of wonderful reversals that we're going to see in the book of Esther. Haman had intended to put Mordecai on a spike, on a huge gallows for the whole city to see. Instead, he led him on a horse in honor through the streets of Susa. It, it wasn't gallows that Haman put Mordecai on, Rather, led him through the streets to cheers and celebration. Let's finish chapter 6. Haman basically goes home crying. Look at verse 12. Afterwards, Mordecai returned to the king's gates, but Haman rushed home with his head covered in grief, blubbing <laughs> and crying, and told his wife, Zezra, and all his friends everything that had happened to him. I mean, you just want to see that, don't you? You just want to see that poetic justice. You just want to see him weep. His advisors and his wife, Zeresh, said to him, since Mordecai, before whom your downfall has started, 
is of Jewish origin, you cannot stand against him. You will surely come to ruin. While they were still talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried Haman away to the banquet that Esther had prepared. Who saw this coming? Who saw this coming? Who saw such a dramatic reversal, such a dramatic U-turn? God did. God orchestrated the details. The sleepless king, the reading of the scrolls, that the entry about Mordecai, that that was the entry that the servant opened the scrolls to, that the king had done nothing about this up until that moment. The entrance of Haman into the courts. Ephesians 1 and verse 11 in, in the New Living Translation. Who could do this but the blessed controller of all things? God makes everything work out according to his plan. You see, even in the most pagan corner of the world, the most corrupt culture that you could ever imagine. Two men who had just signed a treaty to decimate and kill the Jews, even in that context, God was at work. And God is still at work today. He is. He's at work in our lives, in our world today. Do some of you think that the odds are stacked against you? That, that life is a roll of dice, that, that nothing falls in your favor, that your good deeds go unnoticed, that you're unrewarded and nothing ever happens to you that is good. If so, remember Haman and Mordecai. Remember Haman, he began the day in charge, walking around the king's quarters as if he owned the place. He ended the day humiliated. Mordecai began the day in sackcloth and ashes at the gate to the palace with a 70-foot gallows being built for his death and ended the day with the keys to the city, a robe on his shoulders and walking around to adoration. I want you to... Listen to something here. Listen to something. There's a phrase that we often use that's not a good phrase because it's a much better phrase that you can use, which, which is biblical and truth. Who's heard that phrase, the devil is in the detail? Yeah? It's used sometimes in popular culture. It's used. No, 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 no. I want you to redeem that phrase. God is in the detail. Okay? That's the truth. God is in the detail. Just look at the story of Haman and Mordecai. God is in the detail. He's in the detail of your life. He's in the detail of the world that we are living in in 2022. He works in the smallest moments. The insignificant becomes significant because God is orchestrating and working through all things. I'm going to tell you two stories now to illustrate what I'm talking about. One is a personal story and one is a story from history. The personal story is this. About five years ago, when this church was meeting at um, Stratford Circus, it was one Sunday morning. We were just about to start worship. It was just a minute or two before 11. 
We were just about to have the band start the first song. And I was standing near the front, as I often did, and someone kind of like just, just ran past me and looked at me, and I caught them out the corner of my eye. And I knew they weren't a regular to Hope Church, but I couldn't quite place them. So they went up and they sat somewhere and the church and the service happened and we worshipped and, and we prayed and we preached and we responded. In my mind, I recognized this face, this figure, but I couldn't place who they were. At the end of church, John, his name was, came down the steps and said, can I speak to you? And then immediately I placed him. I placed him as a young person that I had known about 10 years previous. He went to a youth camp I helped to run in the summer. And uh, he, he said, I've come this morning, and I hadn't seen him for seven or eight years. He said, I've come this morning to tell you how you changed the whole direction of my life. He said, one evening after one of the evening meetings at the camp that we were running, you sat down with me on the stage, and, and I poured out to you the difficulties in my life. You listened and you prayed for me. He said, that conversation changed the whole direction of my life. Because I had planned, John said, to go home and at the end of the school holidays to kill myself, to end my life. Because I hated school so much and there was nothing for me to live for. But you listened, you cared, and you prayed. And now I have come to tell you that I am married, I have a great job, and I've just become a dad, and I have a little boy. You see, God is in the detail. The crazy thing about that story, let me be completely honest with you, is that I remember John well. He came a number of years to that camp that I helped run. I cannot remember the instance that he's talking about. I can't remember what I said. I certainly can't remember what I prayed. But God is at work in the detail. A king can't sleep. A youth leader listens and prays. Let me tell you a second story from history. It involves a Jewish doctor sharing his Christian faith with a man named Alexandra in a Russian prison. This is a picture of this man, Alexandra. And the story begins in 1918. Alexandra was a brilliant writer, even at a young age of nine. He'd read all the classics and he wanted to be a writer. But by early adulthood, he was a disciple of Marx and Lenin. And he read and he gouged all their writings. And he was on a pathway to, to brilliance in the academic world. But then World War II came about. And Moscow came under siege. And Alexandra was drafted into a military role where he was ridiculed for his academic qualifications and the way he spoke. In February the 9th, 1945, Alexandra was falsely accused of engaging with a spy, of telling a spy information, and he was put in prison. He was convinced that he would be released very quickly, but he was wrong. He'd been sucked into the Soviet system of prisons, and it was almost impossible to pop out. The next eight years of his life 
was a succession of prisons that he found himself in, some better than others. Little by little, for Alexandra, the faith that he'd had in communism, in Stalin, in Lenin, and all the writings, little by little, it diminished. But what would replace it? As a child, he had had an aunt who had a Christian faith, but he hadn't paid much attention to it. In the prisons, there was many who were Christians, many who he listened to, fellow fellow Soviet kind of prisoners who he listened to their Christian faith. But in 1952, a large painful lump appeared on Alexandra's groin, which was found to be cancerous. As he was recovering, he received a visit from a Jewish doctor who had just recently become a Christian. Alexandra later described how, and this is him quoting, fervently the doctor tells me the long story of his conversion from Judaism to Christianity. I am astonished by the conviction of the the new convert. I cannot see his face in the darkness, but there is such mystical knowledge in his voice that I shudder. Now, here's where it gets amazing. That turned out to be the last conversation that that doctor had with anyone. The next day, he was bludgeoned to death in a case of mistaken identity. But Alexandra never forgot the conversation. And a few months later, he put his faith and his trust in Jesus Christ. And Alexandra's passion for Christ, his love for writing, and his devotion to freedom meant that many of his books are considered some of the greatest in literature. Most of you will know Alexandra as Alexandra Solnitsky which many historians attribute his writings to the collapse of Eastern communism. That it was down to his writings that led to the collapse of the Soviet Union's regime in in Eastern Europe. Who would ever have imagined that deep in a prison, Deep in a life built on atheism, his heart would turn to Christ through a conversation with a doctor who had just been saved from a Jewish background and the next day was bludgeoned to death. God is at work. God is at work in the details. I want to help you here now and get really practical to finish. Don't Listen to the voices of doubt and fear. The voices that tell you it's all chance. The voices that tell you no one is in control. The voices that, that, that tell you that, that, that life is one spiraling downward gasp of despair. Don't listen to those voices. If you can't see God's hand at work in your life, If you can't make sense of his ways, let me give you this advice. Obey what you know and be patient with what you don't. 
Obey what you know and be patient with what you don't. Isaiah 40 verse 31. Those that wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. Butterfly wings don't determine the course of history. God does. He did in the days of Esther and he still does today. God is in the details. Let me read two scriptures to bring this to a close. They're not on the screen, these two. Romans chapter 8, well-known one this. Romans chapter 8 and verse 28 says this. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And Job 42 and verse 2 says this, And know that you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Just the verse before, just give its context. Job answered the Lord and said of God, I know that you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. No purposes of God can be thwarted. God is in the details. I want that to give you great confidence this morning. I want you to rest in that. I want you to find the ability to rest in that truth. If you're anything like me, you know, I'm an activist. I want to do things and sort things and try things and sort things and do things. God is in the details. There is a rest that comes. There is a peace that comes with knowing that God is sovereign and God is at work in the details. Be obedient to what God is calling you to do. Be obedient to what he is putting in front of you and be patient with what you don't know yet. Be patient. Take your time. Rest and wait for what you are not sure about. God is in the details. Look at the story of Haman and Mordecai. Look at the timing. Look at the details. Look at how everything perfectly fits together. God is in the details. I want to pray for us as we come to a close. I want us to respond to this message. It's, it's one of those big, overarching messages of truth, of, of a reality of the world that we live in, that God is in the details. Worship guys, why don't you come up? Everyone, can we stand? Can we stand? What we're going to do is this. I'm going to pray for us. We're going to sing. We're going to worship. We're going to sing. Uh, you're a good, good father, Lord. We're going, to, we're going to use this song as a kind of a response to what you've heard. And then I'm going to close the online meeting. And we're going to leave a little bit of space then. We're going to worship for just a little while longer. And I'm going to offer the opportunity for people to be prayed for. The opportunity to, to kind of be very personal and, and very specific 
with our lives and maybe the details of our lives that we would appreciate prayer for. But let's start with, with the big. Let's start with the broad. Let's start with the glorious truths that God is sovereign, that God is in the detail. Let's rest in this truth. Let's rest in this reality. The world says it's chaos. The world says that there's no rhyme or reason. But we have a God who's sovereign. We have a God who is in control. We've seen it in the lives of Haman and Mordecai. Father God, come. Come and meet with us this morning. As we now worship, as we respond. Father, would you come and earth this message? Come, Lord Jesus. Come to our circumstances and our realities and come and earth this truth that God is in the details, that God is at work, is perfect timing, that nothing surprises Him, that nothing takes you, Lord, off your guard, that nothing, nothing comes in the way of God, your plans and your purposes. Come, Lord. Come and meet with us this morning. Come and meet with us this morning. Let's sing, you're a good, good father. Let's use that as we respond in